Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. We preview film productions and events in the region and speak with creative entrepreneurs as Erie carves out its part in the wider industry landscape. I'm Erica Berlin, the president of the board of the Film Society of Northwestern PA. I'm John Lyons, a filmmaker, teaching artist, and executive director of the Film Society. Film Grain Dinner and a Movie at the Bourbon Barrel presents Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Boucher, narrated by Jodie Foster. And our guest today is Brian Sheridan, Chair and Senior Lecturer at the Department of Communication at Mercyhurst University. In our roundtable discussion, Alice Guy Boucher and a brief history of women in film. But first, vote for the Best of Erie 2019 awards through eriereader.com. We have some categories we definitely want you to show some love to. Best Filmmaker, 10 people are nominated, which is very exciting. Hopefully we have 20 people nominated next year. Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Nonprofit, and Best Art Event. Which film grain dinner in a movie is nominated for? Excellent. Everyone vote, please. Film Grain Dinner in a Movie is our Wednesday night film series. Events take place at the Bourbon Barrel, 1213 State Street in downtown Erie, Pennsylvania. The series features a big screen, couch, and table seating options, and great company. And as of this month, an upgraded sound system. Dinner is buffet-style and included with your admission. Vegetarian options every week and gluten-free on request. But you have to request it. Plus table service all night long. Reserve your seats when you order online at filmsocietynwpa.org. Wednesday night, we are screening Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blachet. We will be diving deep into her career, her importance in the history of cinema, and more a bit later in our roundtable discussion. This event is sponsored by Athena Erie. Pre-sales are available through our website, filmsocietynwpa.org. So our guest, Brian Sheridan. Hello there. How are you doing, sir? Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We've been tempted to do this a couple of times. I'm glad it's uh, finally worked out. I'm excited to be able to speak with you and participate in the roundtable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Brian's done a number of um, intros and discussions with uh, the Film Society. I think maybe at at Film at the Erie Art Museum before and at the Bourbon Barrel. It's been fun. You've always (laughs) been a a supporter of us, so thank you very much. Our film historian. That's right. (laughs) I know the old stuff. Yeah, it's good. Mm -hmm. So, um, Brian, I guess before we jump into your background, we wanted to make a a special announcement. We won't tease the the titles or anything, but this summer... Um, Brian's going to be hosting the first Wednesdays of May, June, July, and August. Um, He's going to be hosting a series of films, a selection of films that Brian I get to be a curator. That's right. Oh, good. So we'll have more on that um, coming up. But and we'll do some uh, some backgrounds and some uh, some backgrounders and some discussion that worked out. uh, I know we. We did that for Double Indemnity, and everybody seemed to have a good time afterwards asking questions and yeah. making observations that some of the things I was even like, I didn't see that. I've watched that film four, five, or a hundred times. That's awesome. So are you focusing on classics? Or you no, don't want to give well, it you away? You want to tease out. Erica <laughs> wants to know. <laughs> she wants to know. Should, should we, Do you want to give a, a little tease of maybe the, the area the, that The you're... topic, yes. It's, uh, it's going to be, because of my background in journalism, uh, Journalism has been well presented in movies, and so we're going to be uh, I've taken a, a several of my favorites, and uh, we'll be we'll be presenting those. Ooh, I kind of <laughs> got chills a little bit because I know some of the movies you might be talking about. Thank you for the tease. I'm and very some, excited. Some I'm... might be are the forgotten ones too. Oh, so, good. Yeah. Well, I love movies about journalism, so I can't wait. Yeah, and we love you know we want to do more with our program, so mm-hmm. it's great to have. Have you being a part of it to help kick us kick us in the rear and do more of it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Brian, um, are you a transplant? To no, actually, Arlington? nope. I am born and bred Erie, Pennsylvania. Believe it or not. Wow. Yes. 
Where did you go to to college here? Yeah, (laughs) I even went to college here. Yes, uh, Mercyhurst College at the time, now university, of course. And it's very strange to go back there as a professor, you know, because some of the when I started there and I've been there now 13 years, a lot of some of the professors that I had had were still there. So it was weird to see them as colleagues versus being their students. But uh, in fact, I think there's still one professor left there. Wow. He yeah. just started when I graduated, and now he's still there. Wow. That's pretty funny. Well, and Mercyhurst has a history of film series. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, uh, back in the day, uh, George Geraltz was one of the founders of, you know, he would bring in independent films because mm. we had theaters here wouldn't show them. And so... He would, uh, and George, we, we'd always used to do impressions of George. He was a religion teacher, I believe. George would talk about the importance of movies. And, you know, he was a character. He yeah. really was, you know. And uh, stories of him ordering cars uh, from Detroit without air conditioning, heating systems, because he didn't, or radios, because he didn't want to pay extra for it. I mean, you know, <laughs> a real penny pincher, wow. a penny pincher, George. Oh, that's great. That's great. And then I remember the Gelcher film series. Yeah. Now, the did Gelcher, that follow? Right? Did that, that did follow? after, mm-hmm. after uh, I believe, maybe even crossed over a little bit, but the Gelchers were patrons of the arts, and, uh, and they... They donated money, and then, so then the film series continued after George. I don't remember if he had passed away or just retired, but uh, he uh, he was no longer with the university. And then, uh, so we've done a lot with and and during when I went to school there, saw a lot of film than mm. otherwise because this was in the olden days when you didn't you know VHS was right. a thing. But I remember you know if, to, if you wanted to buy a movie, it was like sixty four, sixty nine, or eighty four dollars. Yeah. Oh you know, my you gosh. Could, you know, you couldn't get it very cheap, and now uh, uh, you just type it up on YouTube and find it. That's but, right. What was your field of study then when you went to uh, I was a college. double major in communication and English. Mm-hmm. Uh, went in there as an English major with a scholarship, a partial scholarship, and then found that uh, journalism, and uh, I'd always been interested in journalism, and uh, that was uh, covered more in the communication area. So mm-hmm. okay. Now, what do you think is the difference between when you were a student <laughs> and college students today? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, technology. That's the that's the biggest thing. I mean, I, I the ability to have every fact at your fingertips, and and then also to be incredibly distracted yeah. by the technology is uh, is amazing. I when I when I was there, it was. The, the last days of, or it was the early days of the computer. I remember uh, editing our school paper on a com- on a computer that there was only one, and you know <laughs> you we all, all huddled had to around share. it. Yes, we all uh, went around it, but we still made pay stubs and things like that, and to send it to the printer. But uh, that is the big thing, and um, that that really I noticed. I mean, I think young people are young people. They still struggle. They still have anxiety. Maybe there's more of it, but. I think maybe it's a lot of it is just more diagnosed now mm. versus back then it would have just been, you know, shut up, you know, and right. Grow right. Up, you know, yeah, right. put your wine in. Right. And now it's that we handle a little bit uh, more with more sensitivity. Yeah. So with more information at their fingertips, do you find that students come to the table with a little bit more informed criticism or when you're in, engaging them in discussions about film? They, and, are they more knowledgeable? And again, no, it's one of those, you know, you have a certain percentage of the class that is, a certain percentage that's just didn't, you know, they, they're, they're pulling the stuff out of their butts, you know, about mm. what to say. Uh, I, I don't think that has changed a whole lot uh, in terms of that. But the ones that do engage in that, but they often will come like, well, I, I read on the Internet this article from this magazine or this newspaper and uh, prior to that, you know, those students might have done that, but they would have to have gone to the library and, and right. sat and looked, found things. And so it maybe has increased that number a little bit because they have the ease of finding it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Probably um, back when you were a student, if, if you guys were referencing um, material, you'd have to, it would probably be a challenge to seek out, especially films. Now you can just right. like, YouTube or yeah. And, and you can compare and contrast movies. And it, it's easier for, for the professors as well for us to say, you know, watch this clip or here's this article. Like, I'll send out things all the time to say, you know, let's take it beyond what we've done in the classroom. I referenced this article or I talked about this video. Here it is. Take a look at it. Mm-hmm. So what courses do you teach at Mercy? Oh, now? Well, you know, I do. Uh, <laughs> 
uh, run the gamut. Uh, the film courses, we just do a film appreciation. I'm doing one right now that is the uh, uh, study of film comedy subgenres. Okay. And, and that was a last minute ad, and I uh, wasn't sure the students in the class needed a class, and so half of them had the film appreciation class, and the other one had this other class that they that they wanted. So we, we compromised on this, and so it was interesting because looking at things, I'm a very much a timeline chronology kind of person. I like to start at the beginning mm-hmm. and move through it, and then demonstrate how things of either technology or the the writing or directing, you know, whatever it is, has changed over the years, and doing it with subgenres. It broke me out of that. And mm. also, I think the students appreciate it more because, I don't know your experiences with this, but not a whole lot of love for the black and whites, right? Mm. You know, they, depending on the movie, but that that's a... Yeah. They don't they don't warm up to that as quickly. The eighties are maybe as classic as uh, Exactly, they're, right? They're comfortable <laughs> yeah. touching. <them>. Yeah. <laughs> but the nice thing about doing it subgenre, I can mix them up. So we can start with a black and white, because I do like to start at the beginning, especially we're talking about film comedy. We're we're talking about, you know, Keaton Chaplin, Harold mm-hmm. Lloyd. Mm-hmm. And then switch to a color more more mm-hmm. recent film. Yeah. And then kind of bounce back and forth and okay. move it around. So you start with like a like Chaplin, or oh, do yeah. you start with something that's a little more, uh, well, I guess palatable. No, we start. I okay. start with Chaplin. I force yeah. him. Like this yeah. is this is where it all We're comes throwing from. Throwing you, in. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and they do uh, Keaton especially. Chaplin, I think, is a little bit too sentimental hmm. for students, but Keaton always kills. I mean, that's they, awesome. They, they they love that, and, they're, and then they're amazed when we'll we'll go through a scene. I'll be say, how do, how do you how do you think he did that? And they're also used to CGI, CGI, right? The computers. Are, I don't know. And then I'd explain. Well, okay, think about it this way. Now figure out how he did this. And they were all they would be all amazed at oh, that's uh, back awesome. then. So they really do get an appreciation for it. Yeah. Hence the title uh-huh. of the class. Yeah, right? that sounds like a class I'd love to take. Yeah, genres of comedy. Oh. Well, we took a uh, we just took a tour of the uh, the National Comedy Center. Took a group up there. Oh, that in Jamestown. In Jamestown, New York, and and I highly recommend it. It is a, an amazing facility. You prepare to spend the entire day there because their interactivity on their exhibits and things, and things change regularly. So it's not like, oh, I was there. And mm-hmm. I, I this is my third time there this year. Wow. And it's completely different than well, not completely, but there's a mm-hmm. lot of difference uh, because they moved in new exhibits and move things around. So. You see some great things. Cool. Was it, putting it there, this is a side question. Yes. But having it in Jamestown, is that inspired by Lucille Ball? Oh, of course. Yeah. Because yeah. she, and in fact, they have papers uh, from, from Lucy's private collection that talked about, hopefully, and this is again at the end of her life, because the, the discussion about the Lucy and Desi Museum had already begun, uh, but just she had seen it as possibly being an attraction for comedy in general like this would be the centerpiece for comedy and and it really it's turned out to be that i mean it is really an amazing facility and um just like you know i guess you know you people scratch their heads jamestown it's the same way that it's the idea that uh cleveland is the center of a rock and, rock and roll, roll fan. Right. we're surrounded by some great art uh centers mm-hmm. for sure i'm sure Very drew cool. carey inspired the cleveland uh rock cleveland and roll Rocks. museum yep, yep. <laughs> 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 do do you guys still do a series at um, Mercyhurst? Is there a film series? Not that I know of. Not that I know of either. Yeah, I That's think the a... most recent one was Movies at Mercyhurst. Right. Right. And that was with Jamie Grady and Christine. Right. Uh, Olivier. Yeah, yeah. I think they've opened yeah. up more of the the theater aspects. Okay. Uh, okay. And the yeah. performing arts versus mm-hmm. the film right. at yeah. the D'Angelo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They amazing series this year. Oh yeah. The, Mayak, right? Yep. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Brett Johnson is doing an amazing job I saw bringing in Patty some of Lepone. those. Yeah. Oof. I mean, Glenn wow. Close. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, Kristen Rufus, Chenoweth. Chenoweth. Oh, yeah, Rufus right. Wainwright. David Sedaris again. Yeah. Third, third time, still sold out. Mm-hmm. Hilarious performance. Yeah. Awesome. They do a great job. Probably. Wait, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just in terms yeah, of the yeah. background, like, yeah. so you were a communications and English major. How did you get into television journalism? Well, ironically, I was always thought I'd be a newspaper reporter, and that was 
in in grade school we started a newspaper when i was went to grade school and i was the editor and we'd have guests from the Erie times come in pat howard in fact and, and i always make pat howard feel incredibly old when i see him like <laughs> you're the man that made me responsible <laughs> and the other person ironically was ed asner because oh, lou grant huh. was on at the time and originally uh, i had read the book in eighth grade all the president's men i couldn't see the movie because again it was 76 at that time. Mm -hmm. So the film was out of theaters because that's when it came Is out. Is that and a cheese, by the way? Yes, that might be. Oh, Erica. <laughs> she's uh, she's, she's, she's going to get it out of you. <laughs> advanced interrogation <laughs> techniques. <laughs> so I, I was always thought of it being, uh, and I love to write. So that's why the English aspect of things. And I and in high school, I edited, or I was editor of the paper or a columnist in a paper. I won some awards. I was actually writing for the Times my senior year writing movie reviews. Hmm. And I thought this was the path I was going to go on. And during my four years at Mercyhurst, I had to do an internship. There was an opening for a television. And I'd, I'd always also been in theater doing performances in that. So I said, well, I'll try this television thing. And I never was a good speller. <laughs> and my handwriting is atrocious. <laughs> and I found out in television, you really didn't need to be a great speller. I'd see some scripts and I'd look at the copy and I'd be like, how do you even read this? <laughs> oh, well, because I know I'm reading it, so I know what I have to, what it says. Right. I'm like, oh. And then the idea that I could be on television, again, I'm a, I'm a Leo, so I've got this huge ego. <laughs> and uh, this, this sounded like a great deal, a yeah. better deal than being stuck in a, in a cubicle mm -hmm. talking to somebody on the phone. I actually wanted to go out right. and see what was going on. Which be out and tell stories. Right. Yeah. And back then, that's what it was because you had to go with television, go get your pictures. Yeah. Now, of course, newspaper uh, reporters go out and do stories because they have to they have to often shoot video and, and get audio and things like that. So it's not just talking on the phone anymore. But back then it was primarily I mean, in fact, All the President's Men is one of the best, most exciting movies of men talking on phones ever For made, sure. right? For sure. And so that's where it, uh, TV was hired part-time uh, at uh, Jet TV, and they also had a radio uh, opening. So I was doing radio news and TV news at the same time. So Cool. That's where, that's where How I How long were you yeah. there? Remind me. Ooh, that was a good question. I don't see. I'm terrible at my own. I love old history except my own. I'm always bad at it. I, you know, at least twenty some years. If you, I was there. I left. I came back. I just uh, a young buck. Left. Yeah. 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 I left again. Yeah. Came back again. Uh, the last time was actually I was teaching full time at Mercyhurst in the summers. Oh, okay. I would go back and just do some reporting here and yeah. there, and then and then doing the job at Mercyhurst became more and more. And we had our son, so that. A thing like that. Yeah. I, I need my summers off. So, did you work film into your program, or did that just kind of naturally? It was it was already there. Okay. I mean, we we don't do. I always say our program is built to to create nonfiction digital storytellers. So the films uh, the film classes are always kind of electives because the students enjoy those. Yeah. So we give yeah. them an opportunity, and plus, I really feel that film is really critically important for understanding our culture. I, the thing I always tell them, I'm like, it doesn't matter when the film is made, it always, or what when the film is set, it always says something about the time in which it was made. Yeah. So yeah. even period films, you know, it's not about, you go see Downton Abbey, the 20s weren't exactly like you see in Downton Abbey, the right. film, it's more about what what we're talking about today is reflected in, in their stories. And of course, even the, the filmmaking itself is not, sure. you know, you wouldn't sit through a film if it were like, made like a 1920s feature length film today because of the the difference in pacing and yeah. acting and dialogue and of course sound right. you know something as simple as that in so. Downton Abbey you're seeing like one class of person's story right you're exactly. not you're not really getting uh, the majority of the experience living in the and it's not the, the point of the movie right. I always I always <laughs> right. tell kids it's not they're not documentaries all right you're right except <laughs> the one thing I do find especially and maybe this will work us back into uh, the the Guy Blanchet uh, stuff is the fact that when watching old movies, silent movies especially, as I've been getting into recently in the last five years or so, the fact that when we can watch silent movies, if you look beyond what's in front of the camera to the backgrounds, they mm. shot those on city streets. Yeah. And oh, they yeah. didn't get permits nope. and they didn't shut streets down. They just would go out and shoot. Right. 
And Guerrilla so filmmaking. Yeah, at its best, right? Yeah. And you can so really see how people were living back then. You know, yeah. Harold Lloyd especially, a lot of his stuff is just shot places where people were. And, yeah. you, and you really get the sense of, I say that's the closest thing you get to time travel. Yeah. And seeing that, not what's going on in the foreground or in, in front of the camera because that's scripted and, and there's a point to that. But what's going on in the background are people just living their lives. Yeah. It just happened to be captured on film at that time yeah which is great my wife and i love love watching old films and just like you said exactly like you said watching the background and just it's like like you're transported back in time yeah yeah it's beautiful beautiful thing Well, you touched on Alice, so Alice is uh, kind of our starting point um, for our roundtable discussion. Such an important figure in the history of cinema um, that I don't know if you, I mean, you knew about her when I when I first yes, reached I do, out to you. I do teach, uh, at least we, we cover a little bit about her and, uh, and Lois Weber as two mm, pioneers mm-hmm. of the silent film industry. And it, it's also a touchstone for talking about women in Hollywood. Yeah. Because and technically, I guess, even though Hollywood wasn't a thing when right. Weber and, and uh, Guy were uh, were making films, it was more more like Fort Lee, New Jersey. Yeah. It's the other thing that right. blows students' minds when cool. I say, where, yeah. does, where, do, where does movies, what's the center for movies? Everyone says Hollywood. Right. Like, try Fort Lee, New Jersey. Yeah, exactly. Real close to us, East Coast. Yes, and East Coast. So Alice Guy Blachet, just to touch on a, a couple things up front, um, she's credited as the first female director by many. Do you agree with that? I would agree. Okay. Yeah. Um, one of the first people to produce a narrative fictional film. Yes, because the, the Luminaire brothers who inspired her and were the fathers of film – they more really were documentarians than right. they were. Set up a camera. Filmers. Here's a train yep. driving through the station. Here's yep. workers Coming walking out of their by. Factory. Yeah, so. and people were amazed by that. Right? You would go sit in a theater. They would just put this this film on a slice of life. But people, you know, there's stories of people moving out of the way when the train would yeah, yeah. go past. Though that's and, apocryphal, I guess. Oh, okay, they, yeah. they have no <laughs> legitimate, like... Uh, that was probably part of the stories, marketing that to, probably come, was, to come yeah, to one of so these. so realistic. Yes. But, I mean, you do have to be amazed that because we take it so for granted today. Yeah. And uh, just to, to, to see somebody captured in motion. Yeah. I mean, photographs are photographs, but right. the ability to see them in movement is just i would say just be mind-blowing right so we had these these companies that were um making these cameras showcasing these cameras right to sell these cameras and of course edison plays into the the whole thing because he wants the monopoly on everything right uh uh, in fact the luminaire brothers they didn't even want to get into the movie business and they um, they got out of it as quickly as they got into it yeah and in fact, Henry was quoted as saying something to the effect that uh, there's no future in this movie business. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> the moving hilarious. pictures. And they wanted, they only did it for their father because their father had, had was in New York City and saw Edison's demonstration. Mm. And they owned a camera shop. So yeah. came back and said, let's. They saw dollar signs. Yeah. They, well, let's get into films. And they were like, oh, okay, dad. You know, right. what, what they really were wanting to do was create a. An, uh, the cheap and easy color film process to add colors to still photography. And that was their passion. The filmmaking thing was just kind of a side. Okay, dad, let's, let's for the company's sake, let's, yeah. let's get involved in this. Well, I guess so everyone knows too, we're talking like eight, late 1800s. 1890s. Yeah. 1890s. Yeah. Um, so Alice Guy Blachet is working as a secretary mm-hmm. Um, and she goes to one of these presentations. Things kind of change from there, right? She's watching She's watching the camera house, being a secretary, and she gets this idea to take this equipment, and her first film is credited as, what, The Cabbage Fairy? The Cabbage Fairy, yes. The story of, uh, of how babies are born. <laughs> right. <laughs> In a very G-rated way. Yes. <laughs> a mythic way. <clears throat> Which uses some um, special effects, some mm-hmm. early visual trickery. Um, and, and again, 
just amazing in in the eighteen late eighteen nineties that to not only think of the narrative aspect but add the special effects in and and her other films you know she does synchronized sound way before anyone else does uh, she does um, the use of color and that's the other thing that I think students are surprised about you know the old story right is like there were people who believed that color came around during the making of The Wizard of Oz. Right. So that's why the second in, half of In that <laughs> moment in, of that yeah. scene. Right, they that were was like, when we, we have color now, we color can use color, right? Yeah. And, I, and I point out that, well, color really was around since the early days of film, and it's, yeah. it's switching to color film wasn't as big of a deal as it was when they switched from silent to sound. Right. It didn't wreck people's careers. The talkies. The to- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but yet to, to have her think of that and... and um, just you know her the artistic style of things she was one of the the, the documentary shows her examples of all of these things but the first use of an all-black cast right yeah that film was wow. a fool in his money which yeah. is believed to be the first film yeah it's just incredible that that somebody would have had the foresight to to pursue that and actually to be allowed to do it too right mm-hmm. and not be that worried about the reception right of it. Yeah. Yeah. So she's, I mean, she's huge. She's directed, uh, what do they say, eight, 800, 1,000? Yeah, between 800 and 1,000 movies. In, in wow. such a short amount of time, um, from 1896 to 1920. Yeah. And where were people watching her Every films? place you could, I mean, film explodes. And, and, and this is in France where she started. It's in France, and then she comes to the United uh-huh. States. But film is being sent back and forth because audiences in other parts of the world, including the U.S., where we're making films, obviously, they want movies. And so the demand is really high. And I guess any place, you know, you had a storefront and a a bed sheet. Yeah. You could could get cameras. Now, in Europe, it was easier probably to get the film, either to make the movies or to to show the movies because you didn't have to deal with the Edison Trust. Mm -hmm. And the Edison Trust kind of demanded that you use these products and you know Edison himself didn't think a movie should be longer what than 20 oh, minutes I think yeah, yeah right he <laughs> right. had a monopoly on everything and, yeah. and really he really was was crushing the creative spirit out of these people yeah. where in Europe they were free to do what they wanted and they were and some american filmmakers would just go buy their equipment in england or in france so they didn't have to deal with Edison right yeah. well and i think later we're going to get to the hayes code yes oh yes another <laughs> Um, thing yeah. about making movies in the U.S. <laughs> um, you were talking about places to see um, movies. When I was in Newcastle this summer uh, teaching a class, they had, you know, I showed you the Warner Brothers Museum mm-hmm. that they're opening up there, but they had two or three, and this is just in Newcastle, downtown Newcastle, two or three movie houses right next to each other competing against each other at the same time. Wow. Different companies. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And it was like a sink or swim, you know, it was cutthroat. They'd be trying to steal each other's business and mm-hmm. show the newest. And, and, you know, the funny thing about it is that I think the story of, of Alice Gee is, the, is that she had the misfortune of being a pioneer in an industry that would become sexist mm-hmm. and disregarded its own history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because filmmaking was never seen I mean, it wasn't even protected by the First Amendment as a freedom of speech until the 50s. It wasn't seen as something artistic worth saving and valuing. It was, like you said, cutthroat, what's the next thing? Right. And thus, the films that they made, poof, you yeah. know, they, were, they were lost to history. or they Because nobody thought of this as, one day people are going to want to sit down and rewatch these things. Nope, right. it was, what's the newest thing? Right, or look at them as historical artifacts. Like yeah. you say, let's look, take a look at what the culture was like at that time right. and how the film reflects that. Yeah, which is, it's sad, very sad. So out of Alice's um, uh, potentially 1,000 films, 150, they estimate, have survived, 22 of them feature length. So and the amazing that is, many films yeah. just from this prolific filmmaker are gone. And think of it, she wasn't the only one. Yeah. I mean, independent filmmaking was a was a huge thing back then. This would predate the uh, the studio system, which yeah. would which would set out to crush all of the independents <laughs> yes. and uh, attempt to force and and again, I'm a big fan of the golden age, and that's one of the areas of study for me. But uh, 
but yeah, that back in those old days, it was the wild west for filmmaking and yeah. you could do all sorts of different things and be all sorts of different types of people to, 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 in, in do that. In fact, I love Lois Weber, who was a, a the first, a female U.S. director and producer. She, uh, there were so many women involved in filmmaking at that time. She called it a manless Eden. I wow. love that quote. Ooh. It was a manless, manless Eden. Eden. Yes, because they were, they were, they were, you know, being cinematographers. They were being screenwriters. They were being obviously the actresses. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was a lot of creative talent on the backside of the camera, doing the work because yeah. there were no men to tell them no. <laughs> and and it wasn't that they it was not seen as a it was a particularly it definitely wasn't a vaunted profession you know it was even the theater people looked down on film people the original a lot of the New York actors would agree to be in a movie as long as their name wasn't used wow, wow. <laughs> because they didn't want to be embarrassing embarrass their families by being in a movie mm-hmm. because they were they were uh, respected Broadway performers right. or theater stage actors. Well, I think now it goes the other way. I think you have <laughs> a lot of popular actors that are going, I want to get on stage. Right. I just saw the trailer for Harriet, and mm. Leslie Odom Jr., yeah. who oh, yeah. is a star Amazing. of Hamilton, yeah. is now moving to screen in that in that film. I can't wait to see it. I know. That yeah. looks like a good one. We might be showing that. Mm. <laughs> um, you should. We should also touch on, because we were talking about New Jersey, she was um, – if not the first, one of the first women to own and operate a studio. Yeah, and her design, her design of this, of this, well, they didn't call them sound stages, but that's a, in effect what she was building there. Yeah, and even today, what they do is similar to what she she was doing back then, in the at the turn of the century. And she was in her twenties. She yeah. was like mid twenties yeah. when she owned a studio. Yeah. It's she, so she leaves France, right? She gets married. She gets married. And we won't cover the whole plot of the documentary because obviously we you, want you people have to, to see, see it. it. I mean, it's, it's, such, uh, it's a, so wonderful because it's, it's half history, half detective story because yeah. the filmmakers have to piece together her history and her backstory, and they let us in on that process. And that's, a, right. that's my favorite part of the movie. Yeah. And this kind of touches on where we'll go with women in film, but – at some point, it feels like um, some of the men that were in her orbit at that point in time felt a little betrayed that she got married and left the country and started having ambitions to do her own thing, mm-hmm. right? Wow. <laughs> yes. They, they were like, how dare you go yeah. and get married and want right. to have, have that kind of domestic <laughs> life, which is the opposite, I think, what are you doing here as a filmmaker? Shouldn't you be over there having babies and <laughs> right. contributing to the population? Yeah. So, and this this ties in, of course, to uh, her being pretty much erased from the history. Incredibly, yes. Just incredibly. Films that she made were were given the credit was given to male directors yeah. who worked for Gaumont. Yeah, like the listings of the films and who directed in these studios totally attributed to someone someone else and the lousy ones were given to her the ones that she didn't make (laughs) there's a whole thing in the film about that she's like i didn't make that movie it was terrible and uh yeah crazy i didn't like i don't like that i don't like that at all (laughs) so that's that's alice and then uh erica um touched on the Hayes code which do you guys talk about the oh, Hayes of course, Code in yes. class? Oh yes. So There's... give us give us a little overview. I pasted just so Erica could see the the crazy um, regulations. I posted the code into our little shared doc. Yeah, the 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 code was enacted originally in the mid twenties uh, to attempt to keep boycotts from damaging the film industry. Because again, this is where the business aspect of the show business is, is that people were feeling that films, and they, they, there were a lot of, there, there was nudity, there was drug use, there was a lot of, of things going on that people today might be surprised about because they think of, oh, the old black and whites, they were also family friendly. Not so much, really. You had, much like today, I always say to my students, back then, in, even in the silent era, you had examples of every type of film that you have today, from comedy to porn. It was all mm-hmm. back then. It was just a matter of degrees. And uh, so they, they wanted to 
prevent the government from stepping in and telling them what they could and couldn't do. Because remember, it's not protected by the First Amendment. Right. And in towns, uh, in, in states, you'd have state censor boards that would look through films, object to something, cut it out, splice the film back together. Didn't matter if it made the film unintelligible. And show it, and and then and then those prints, those those prints would have to go back to the movie studios, and then they would wind up with all these prints that were all chopped up, and nobody sent the clippings back; they just oh, threw wow. them away. So they were losing money on these prints because if a in Michigan, for instance, a print made that was cut up there wouldn't be usable in Pennsylvania, who had a different standards for this. So they tried to unify it, but what they did, it was more of a public relations thing, yeah. and created a code that was voluntary and of course what do we all know sex sells mm -hmm. so who's going to be the first one to say we're not going to do it anymore but they all signed on to it yes we're we're trying to clean up they hire will hayes who is the former postmaster general and methodist minister the perfect guy to lobby congress people and religious leaders to say listen we're cleaning up we're, right and they did this big thing where the celebrities put a good were, face on it exactly they were lipstick on a pig right they mm -hmm. were all these pictures of celebrities and domestic life and you know right. and, but that was the films that were still being made that had these of, objectionable content this objectionable content so by 1934 they ousted Hayes and put in uh they they put in uh, now of course we talked about blanking on a name uh they put in another guy who who oh. was who was uh uh, very much a believer in this, and he had worked with the Catholic Legion of Decency to force hmm. the the studios to adhere to the code. And that was, in 1934, things changed dramatically. Yeah. And what used to be a voluntary code now was, if you did not follow it, you would get fined. They would not allow you to make your movies. And the studios were kind of, they were happy because the Catholics... And other religious groups now were banding together, threatening a boycott. Right. And it's the Depression. They're yeah. already struggling with money. They mm -hmm. don't want uh, – many of the studios were in receivership and people were taking pay cuts. They didn't want to lose their audience. Right. So they went along with this. And it, it forced the filmmakers to be a little bit more creative in what they were uh, portraying on screen. I love a quote from Leonard Malton who said, you know, uh, that after 1934 – slums in movies were a lot nicer than they were <laughs> prior to that. And it was the other idea was that these films were being seen overseas. And so they wanted to present right. this image of America that yeah. really wasn't true. So, yep, got to have a clean slum, yeah. right? A nice, nice slum because our slums aren't bad. Right. Your slums are bad. <laughs> but something that ties into all of this and as far as women, this is this is becoming right the studio system. So And men are taking over because yeah. the large amount of money that films are raking in. So then what used to be, oh, this is just a, a fun pastime. Mm -hmm. And I always tell my students, it's like all of a sudden whack-a-mole. Like everybody plays whack-a-mole, right? It's suddenly like turning whack-a-mole into an art form. You wouldn't have known it, right? You know, everybody plays it. Oh, it's a lot of fun, but you wouldn't think <laughs> of it as art. Right. I, that's how film was kind of perceived. But once the money started rolling in and and it looked like an established mm -hmm. kind of career or service industry, that's when the men said, all right, we're going to come in, push the women out. Right. We're going to consolidate. Set these rules. Power, and a lot of these, these rules, rules, you're no longer able to tell some very important female stories like, you know, abortion Abort issues yeah. and, and things like that. Um, and they became more kind of. Hollywood became more commercialized and bland a little bit. Could be so, a critique. You know, it's it's one of those crazy double-edged swords because we think of often the greatest movies made were made under the code. Yeah. And hmm. from 34, you know, 1939 was the greatest year for movies ever. Right. All of those right. films had to follow the, the Hayes yeah. Code. Right, and that Joseph would be... Breen was the guy's name I was trying to think of. There, oh, okay. oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, Breen took over and really enforced the code. Now, 39, you have... Um, Gone with the Wind yep. and yeah. The Wizard of Oz. So two huge, and with the same director. Yep. Yeah. Right? No. Victor, Victor Fleming. Victor Fleming. Yeah. That's right. Jeez, I know more than you about it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You're just blanking on the name. And the only reason I know that is because I'm married to a 
a cinema major. Yeah. So, um, I've learned a lot over the past six or seven years. <laughs> we should say, though, that like Dorothy Arzner mm-hmm. um, is pretty much the only woman director to have survived this environment. Right. Uh, the other Hayes one would be uh, that, that turned to directing while she was an actress during this was Ida Lupino. Right. But she found a lot of uh, a lot of uh, more television work, which was more receptive to a woman. But she was able in the 50s then to to be making movies. Uh, here's a here's a, a terrible fact. Uh, but I, it really demonstrates the lack of opportunity for women in the studio system. The Universal Pictures, who had hired uh, Alice Guy Blanchet to direct, did not have a female director on any of their movies from the mid-1920s to 1982. Wow. Not one female director. Ridiculous. Imagine how many hundreds of movies were made. Wow. And it's not much better today. No. Uh, there was a study done of the top 250 films of 2016. 92% of the films had no female director. 96% of the films had no female cinematographer. And 97% of the films had no female composers. Wow. Yeah. So the opportunity for women, and you know it's... So the it, lasting effects of... Of the, of the sexism and yeah, of the, the studio system and the still Hayes is with us. And, yeah, it's still with us. We, I found some stats, too, recently. Looking at... Um, there has been efforts, right? We are working... Yes, yes. The industry is working to finally include women more. There's been an 8% increase um, from 2017 to 2018 and a 20% increase from 2007 to 2018 in the number of films... Featuring a female lead or a co-lead, um, that's in the top 100 films annually. And then we have some more stats from Reframe. Um, in 2018, only 40% of the top 100 grossing films featured a female in the leading or co-leading role. And this is with women uh, as the majority of the population and the majority of um, media consumers. Yeah. Or not, which, which actually <laughs> was back in the silent days. The studios they catered to middle class women. Hmm. So, and again, that hasn't changed. We still have women right. being the being the the clients to these for these films. You'd think if they were like so, if Hollywood was so focused on money and the dollar, right, as they are, that when they see these movies open that ha- that are women centered stories and women in the leads and behind the camera that do well that they would just be duplicating the hell out of that like they do everything else right exactly right, right. <laughs> nothing succeeds like success right <laughs> right we'll, we'll, we'll do it again and again until we're tired of it and it's even worse of course for non-white women right yes. the numbers mm-hmm. are atrocious like one percent two percent um well and it's funny because bridesmaids was such a big hit and it was such a film that they, this is a woman's film. It was directed by a man. Now, Paul Feig, who I think is becoming the George Cukor of our modern yeah. age because he tends to work very well. Uh, that that was a deep reference there. George Cukor was known as the women's director back in the golden age. Uh, worked a lot with Catherine Hepburn. He could elicit these performances out of the, the actresses, and they he was respectful to them as well. Uh, so Paul Feig is, has gone on to do you know, a simple favor, Ghostbusters, all right. women, yep. and uh, the Heat, which is right. a film I actually I just showed in my film class, okay, uh, because I wanted to show it as an example of a buddy cop right. comedy, but also then work in this idea of yeah. the status of women, because that was written by a uh, female writer uh, from Parks and Rec who just submitted a spec script hmm. and was chosen, and yeah. Then, so then, of course, the two main leads, Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. It's not a great movie. It's, it's really entertaining. entertaining and, yeah. um, and they make the movie better than it is. But the whole point of this was uh, kind of different from what would normally would have happened. Yeah. Um, just looking at where we've come from, Catherine Bigelow is still the only female to win a Best Director yep. Academy Award. Um, for the for the, the the locker the Foot Locker the Hurt, the hurt Locker, the hurt locker. The Foot Locker, the foot locker. <laughs> it's about sneakers that's at the right. mall. Patty Jenkins, uh, Wonder Woman broke box office records as the biggest domestic opening for a female director. 
um, which has made over 821 million globally. Uh, Crazy Rich Asians, which just came out, what, last year, was the first studio film in 25 years to showcase an all-Asian cast. Right, which also, silent movie days, you had uh, uh, several Asian actors and actresses, which were big stars, yeah. that just fell by the wayside, especially when sound came in. Yeah. So, And then we have a list of some other filmmakers yeah. that are starting to have critical and box office success. Can I give a shout out to one of my favorites? Please. And I'm sure this is appealing to the female audience of consuming media, but Nancy Myers is one of my <laughs> oh, yeah. favorites. She makes, she work. writes and directs great movies. Yeah. Um, you may call them, you know, maybe a little bit cheesy, but there are so People see them. Good. They love them. Well, they know, love them. And okay, again, something's got to give. It's complicated. Right. The holiday. Come yep. on. It's great. But it's, it's directed. I mean, it's, she knows who her audience is yes. and, and, and provides them with quality entertainment. Yeah, I was just having a discussion with a student about Tyler Perry. Yes. Uh, he, he's an African-American student who's writing a, a piece on on Tyler Perry's movies and, and what they mean. And I'm like, well, just you have to think about it in terms of who's your audience and do you cater to a try to expand the audience or do you give the audience kind of what they want? And then they get way more out of it than others would. So is there anything wrong with that? He's apparently successful, right? (laughs) Yes, he is. He's been able to open his own studio, right? Right. So yeah. In Atlanta, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 It's a big, big filmmaking state, Georgia. Huge. Mm -hmm. The Rock just bought a big (laughs) complex down there to live. Cool. So there you go. One of the fine Saves best on the travel. Time. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. I think we'll put it on Airbnb. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, so Erica, have you, um, as the woman in the room, uh, have you noticed at the theater or you know wherever you consume media, have you noticed a change? Is or do you feel like you're still lacking in proper options? Well, I'll be honest. I don't always see the director or right. a screenwriter, you know, the kind of movies that I'm attracted to. Um, or even women-focused Women-focused films. Um, lately, you know, I haven't really seen that many female-focused films, but I'll do a callback to last week where we talked about horror movies that we liked, and one of my favorites over the past couple years was Annihilation. Oh, yeah. Completely a female-driven mm-hmm. movie where you have women scientists, essentially, going off into this bubble that has taken over the southern United States to figure out what's going on. People have gone in and never come out. It's an incredible story. And each of the characters are smart, um, empowered women. That was definitely one of my favorites that I've seen over the past couple years. That was a truly female-driven story. Yeah, that didn't call it out. Yeah, that didn't it's call it out. Just, these are smart characters. Right. Like, have, look at all these women in this movie. Right. Oh, <laughs> right. you know. Right. But I. It now also I'm, failed miserably at the box office. Well, we didn't. We didn't fail it. <laughs> it we we one of the best it. movies last. It definitely, last year. definitely. Well, and it calls into the, calls into discussion the idea of representation in cinema, and and of course, there's a big. I'm a huge James Bond fan, and there's. There's been a big outcry among Bond fans, uh, which love to complain about everything, apparently, uh-huh. about how that uh, that in the new Bond film, No Time to Die, 007 is going to be a woman. Yeah. And, yeah. But that's, you know, she's not James Bond. That's a number. Right. It's like, you know, she's she's assigned 007 because right. he retires. What do you think? And I said, what do you think? They retire the number like it's uh, like the Boston Celtics. They hang his jersey in the, in the, <laughs> right. in the MI6 gym. Right. Like, of course, it's going to be. He's but, undercover. But yeah. my guess will be that by the end of the film, James Bond will be 007 once again. Uh-huh. Uh, right. know, but be- it, and then there's the discussion of, well, that James Bond's going to become a woman. I'm right. Like, well. You know, and and or even an African American, even an African American, yeah, Idris big, Elba, which I'm all, f- I'm, right, I'm fine. I would love that. You know, I, I you, you would know. love that too. I'm love sure, yeah. Idris Elba, <laughs> yeah, he's fantastic. He's a little old though. That's the only love thing. Is I think he's a little old for the role, mm-hmm. that we, especially to reboot the franchise. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that representation does matter, and I and I can't stand when people say, "Well, what does it matter if it's a, a man or a woman?" Well, it is. And Kevin Smith, the, the filmmaker, said, he, you know, he took his daughter to Wonder Woman, and the, I don't know if it was a premiere or just a screening, but how 
the the women in the in the audience just went crazy yeah. you know cheering and and it hit him as being a comic book fan from way back wow they have not i've had this experience multiple times yeah. i saw batman for the first right. time they did they have not had this experience so it's really important that Very the, important. the different types of people whether you know uh genders and, and ethnicities mm-hmm. and abilities and disabilities and all that have some sort of representation right. on film so that the audiences can relate to that person mm-hmm. versus right. always it being the same type over and over and over mm-hmm. again. Which matters behind the scenes as well. Who's making the movies? Who's mm-hmm. writing the movies? Right. You know, Because it can be very tone deaf if you're just doing it for the, you know, uh, and there's a there's been a lot of talk about the woke crowd or the mm-hmm. call out crowd. Yeah, if it's just for the sake of of being woke or making a statement, right. then maybe that is a problem. That yeah. that if you're just if you're pandering to the audience. But if it's a if it's an authentic like no one would say that Wonder Woman, of course, that wasn't pandering. That was just a great piece of filmmaking for superhero filmmaking right. i'm going to put that in its own category because <laughs> you know as in terms of what martin scorsese has been saying right but uh but that wasn't pandering to the audience it no. was giving the audience kind of what they want without being too much fan service yeah. and which this is one of the most people. iconic characters yeah. in the history of comic books right she and needed her her day yep <laughs> right for sure well and talk about you know an iconic character i mean you have um Daisy Ridley coming in. Right. Oh and my God. As another, the new Skywalker. Another right. another uh, group of fans that do not take change well, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I love Rogue One. I thought that yeah. was a, that mm-hmm. for a for a franchise to step out and to make something like that that didn't hit all the notes as you might expect, but took some yeah. left turns and right turns and yeah. that I really enjoyed that film. I think just from a, I, I just don't get Hollywood because from a business perspective, right, the box office is going down. Oh, yeah. Right? So why wouldn't you want to bring in more diversity in the theater and, you know, and reflect society better? And we are. It's a, a good I, I, business decision makes, if you're still a complete sense. jackass. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, and we, we're as a culture are way more accepting. If anything, to bring this conversation back around, you're asking the difference between the the maybe when I was a student and the students today, the amount of acceptance and kindness that is offered to others of of different abilities or different backgrounds is amazing. I mean, it really yeah. is to see it. And I think we as an audience would go to those movies as right. long as they're good movies, right? right? Future generations, I'm not. I'm not so worried about. I'm worried about how much longer we need to endure. Yes. The uh, the old the good old boys yep. crowd in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here, Brian. Oh, it was my pleasure. Yeah, it was it great. Was a fun time. We'll have you back someday yeah, to talk we, about you know before the summer for sure. Yeah. <laughs> when we start previewing the big reveal of the program <laughs> for the summer. Exactly. <clears throat> Maybe we might tease it a little bit more as time goes on. Okay. Erica, well, Erica's <laughs> gonna get it. I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna come up with my list. I definitely have it. I definitely have my list. So that's been our episode. You can buy tickets for Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blachet, and the rest of our programming at filmsocietynwpa.org or at the door the day of the event. Next week, we will be joined by Menagerie Studio to talk about their new documentaries, Art 100 and New Americans. And November 18th, our guest will be screenwriter Phil Perello. Make sure you follow us on social media. You'll find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Grain. This podcast is produced by Edinburgh University's Center for Branding and Strategic Communication. It's part of the Northwest Pennsylvania Innovation Beehive Network.